Welcome, Crisscrossing Science listener. Mike and I are mixing things up just a little bit this week, and that's because in the coming weeks, we have an exciting event happening on campus. Towards the end of February, we're having two Nobel laureates come and join us on campus, and both of them agreed to have a conversation with us for the purposes of our podcast. And so the next two episodes of our podcasts will be our individual conversations with each of those Nobel laureates. Their research is related in that it has to do with atoms colliding with photons of light and what happens to those atoms as a result of that collision. So that's kind of the main thing to keep in mind as you listen to these next two episodes. Mike, is there any sort of analogy or or way that we should be thinking about this? Yeah, so I mean... If we're talking about momentum, I often like to think about space. You know, Mm -hmm. imagine you're an astronaut and I throw a ball at you so that you are catching the ball. Okay. Well, the ball would tend to impart its momentum onto you, meaning that it will tend to push you in the same direction that it was already going in the first place. And so if you were standing still, then it will make you start moving in whatever direction the the ball was originally traveling. Or if you are already moving, maybe you're moving towards the ball already, it'll slow you down just a little bit when you catch that ball. It's also interesting to think about the fact that if you then throw the ball again, that will tend to push you in the opposite direction of whatever way that you've thrown the ball. You know, so if you've thrown the ball back at me, it will tend to push you backwards. If you throw the ball behind you, it'll tend to push you forward. And so there are different ways to think through what momentum is doing. Okay. And so the analogy here is the astronaut who's floating through space is the atom and the ball that is intersecting with that astronaut is the photon of light. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, and so in both conversations where both Bill Phillips and Dave Wineland played with that, with their research. And so they were both great conversations. We had a lot of fun with both of them. By the way, some housekeeping that we should do. You should look on to our Facebook page because we have a link if you would like to see Bill Phillips give a symposium on Thursday, February 23rd at 7 p.m., you can get tickets. The tickets are free, but you have to still reserve them just so that there's an accurate count of who's going to be showing up and so forth. And so if you go on our Facebook page, then you can get those tickets and listen to him in person. Yeah, sounds cool. I mean, you know, what else you got going on on a Thursday Thursday in the end of February? Come see a Nobel laureate. Exactly. Enjoy the show. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that likes cool stuff. And by cool, we mean near absolute zero. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is William Phillips. Hey, Chad. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. So our semester is over. We're, we're now looking forward to the spring. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, let's talk about really cold things. Yeah. We are very fortunate today to be joined by a Nobel laureate. This is Dr. William Phillips from the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the Joint Quantum Institute that is also affiliated with the University of Maryland. So Dr. Phillips, Bill, Thank you so much for joining us, and we're looking forward to your visit to campus. So thanks for talking to us today. It's great to be here with you virtually, and I'm looking forward to being there in person. Excellent. Excellent. So you won the Nobel Prize in 1997, and the work here was for slowing neutral atoms using laser light. And there's a whole lot of words there. 
And it, I don't know if it might be good to pick each word out and break it down a little bit, but I know what each of those words means individually, but as a phrase. Yeah. Maybe one way of saying it is we make the coldest stuff that has ever been anywhere. Whoa. Okay. So when you say cold, what do you mean by that? Okay. So what does it mean to be hot or cold? Let's say I've got a gas, like the air in the room where we are right now. If the gas is hot, it means the atoms and molecules that make up that gas are moving fast. And if the gas is cold, it means they're moving more slowly. To make that more explicit, temperature is just a measure of the kinetic energy of the atoms and molecules that make up the gas. It's just another name that we have for it. We could measure temperature in joules if we wanted to, but it's not very convenient. So we have another scale. We measure it in kelvins. So room temperature is about 300 kelvin. That is 300 degrees, which are the same as Celsius degrees above absolute zero. Now, what is absolute zero? According to this description that I've given you, where temperature is a measure of the kinetic energy, then absolute zero is when there is no kinetic energy, when things stop. Now, the trouble is, it's a little bit of a lie. Because of quantum mechanics, things never actually stop moving. Hmm. So temperature is a measure of the extra kinetic energy beyond what quantum mechanics demands that you have. Now, what do I mean by the energy that quantum mechanics demands that you have? It has to do with the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So most people think of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle as being the idea that you cannot know both the position and the momentum of something at the same time. And that your uncertainty in knowing where something is times the uncertainty in knowing what its momentum is has always got to be bigger than some number. And that number is Planck's constant divided by four pi or something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say that I've got a gas and it's in a box. Well, I know where it is up to the size of that box. Okay, so that's yeah. going to be a certain uncertainty in its momentum. And that uncertainty in the momentum corresponds to a certain amount of kinetic energy. We don't count that as temperature. So temperature is a measure of what's extra. For almost everything that anybody cares about, that quantum mechanical energy is negligible, but not for us. Oh, I see. So you're saying that at room temperature, those atoms are moving so fast that the little extra bit that you're talking about here, we don't care about. So the quantum bit is so small, we don't care about it. Exactly. But I but suspect you're going to say that you said you made the coldest things ever, that maybe it, it matters down at that temperature. Exactly. So when we get down to nanokelvins or picokelvins, then yeah, the quantum mechanical energy is really important. In fact, we often work under circumstances where the quantum mechanical part is dominant it. That's the main thing. Hmm. And so when you say nano or pico kelvins, you're talking like 0.009 to 12 zeros or something like that. Exactly. Of a degree Kelvin right. is absolute zero, the coldest temperature that you could even imagine. <laughs> okay. Okay. So for our listeners, let's just quickly say a scale. So in the United States, we use Fahrenheit, but we're also aware of Celsius where at zero degrees Celsius, water freezes and at hundred degrees Celsius, water boils. Right. But that's much, much hotter than the temperatures you're talking about. And so we have a, this other scale called Kelvin, which is basically the Celsius scale just shifted over by 273 degrees. And so if we're talking about what temperature does water freeze, well, that's at 273 Kelvin yeah. at, and it boils at 373 Kelvin. And so when you're saying you're at nano Kelvin, you're saying right exactly a nano kelvin is going to be one billionth of a degree above absolute zero okay. hmm. and that's the kind of temperatures we get to routinely hmm. 
By contrast, just to give you an idea of how cold other things are, as I said, room temperature is about 300. As you mentioned, ice melts at about 273. Dry ice, if I'm remembering correctly, is about 195. The coldest temperature anybody ever measured on the surface of the earth, someplace in Antarctica in the winter, was 185. If you go to outer space, far away from any planets or stars or whatever, nebula, space is filled with radiation left over from the Big Bang. And the temperature of that radiation is a little bit below three, about 2.7. And we're talking about one billionth of a degree. Okay. So how do you even get down there? Like, I'd, I'd like to know kind of like, what does the apparatus look like and what is it doing and what's happening under the hood? Yeah. So... Since temperature is about kinetic energy, about the energy of motion, to make a gas cold, what we got to do is to slow down the atoms. So the way we do it is a process called laser cooling. We shine laser light on the gas of atoms and the laser light pushes on the atoms in such a way as to make them slow down. Now, I think it's a good idea to appreciate right from the start, how crazy this idea is. Because I think we all know that the natural thing you expect if you shine light on something is that it's going to get hot. Mm-hmm. I'm, we figure out a way of shining light on something and it gets cold. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the heat aspect because we're having this conversation a few days after the big announcement of fusion uh, yeah. lasers <laughs> was recently right. announced. And so I was thinking about that and how Here's this application where lasers were used to create these incredibly high temperatures. And what you're telling us is that you can also use lasers to create incredibly cold temperatures. Right. So that is crazy. It is. Okay. I can try to explain how that works. So one of the key things is that light exerts pressure on stuff. Now, people have known or at least guessed that that was true since the time of Johannes Kepler, the guy who figured out that the planets went around the sun in elliptical orbits. He also figured out that the tails of comets always point away from the sun. And he guessed correctly that it was because the sunlight was pushing on whatever was making up a comet. He had no idea. Now we know it's sort of dust and frozen gas. And that he figured that the sunlight was pushing on that stuff and making it stream out away from the sun. And it turns out that that That's true. Hmm. So light pushes on stuff. Now, when I've got a gas of atoms and I shine light on it, the most likely thing that's going to happen is the light's just going to go right on through. The gas is transparent. I mean, that's why we can see one another because the air is transparent. Mm -hmm. But if you use just the right color for just the right atom, then the atoms will absorb the light and they will feel a force. If they don't absorb the light, they won't feel the force. So tell me a little bit more. What do you mean by just the right light for just the right atom? So every atom is different as to what color of light it will absorb. Most colors of light, they will not absorb. And each atom will have a certain set of colors that it will absorb. Now, color corresponds to frequency. So light is just an electromagnetic wave like radio waves or microwaves. It has a frequency. It's just that light is a lot higher frequency than radio waves and microwaves. Mm -hmm. And the higher the frequency, the bluer the light. The lower the frequency, the redder the light. The thing is that an atom will only absorb the light if the color, which is to say the frequency, is very, very close to the right value. So to give you some idea, light has a frequency of a few times 10 to the 14 cycles per second. Like FM radio is 10 to the 8 cycles per second in round numbers. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a few million times higher frequency than FM radio. Okay. About a hundred megahertz. You, you know, if you listen to FM radio, they'll tell you what the frequency is, you know, it's often around a hundred megahertz, right? Okay. So that's a hundred million cycles per second. So we're talking about something that is a million times higher frequency than that. That's what light is, you know, a okay. few times 10 to the 14. Now, if the color, let's say sodium, which is my favorite atom, because it was the first one that we laser cooled. If you change the frequency by just 10 megahertz, so that corresponds to 10 to the seventh cycles per second, out of a frequency of a few times 10 to the 14 cycles per second, if you change it by that much, then the atom will hardly absorb any any light at all. So that means if your light is wrong by about a part in a hundred million, then the atoms will not absorb it. So if you want to push on the atoms in a gas, you're going to have to have a light that's got the right frequency to within part in a hundred million. Now, the only kind of light that does that is laser light. So that's why we call it laser cooling, because we have to use laser light to do it. So here's where the sort of the magic part comes. You shine the light into the gas and you tune it right, but the gas atoms are moving all over the place. And that means that they experience a Doppler shift. Now, the Doppler shift is a change in the frequency that something sees when it's moving compared to the source of light or sound or whatever. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're on the seashore and you see the waves coming in. You could measure what the frequency of the waves was, right? You could Mm -hmm. say, I get five waves in a minute, whatever Mm -hmm. the frequency of the waves hitting the shore is. If you got into a boat and moved into the waves, you'd see a higher frequency, right? Sure. And you turn the boat around and headed back to the shore, you see a lower frequency. That's the Doppler shift. If you're moving compared to the source of the waves and light is a wave, then you're going to see a higher frequency if you're moving toward the source and a lower frequency if you're moving away. Well, this works the same way for our atoms. If the atoms are moving toward the laser beam, it looks like the frequency of the laser beam is a little bit higher than if the atom were at rest. And if the atom's moving away from the laser beam, then to the atom, like the laser is a little lower in frequency. That's the thing. If you tune it right, you Ah, tune the frequency of the light. So it's lower than what the atom wants to absorb if the atom were at rest. So only an atom that's toward the light is going to see it to have the right frequency. Oh, so you're saying if we were in a rocket ship and we wanted to listen to some tunes, we'd have to change our radio station to make it, to actually tune it in. All right. So if I was tuning my radio station, greatest hits of yesterday and today, whatever it is, I don't know. And I'm going towards Earth. How would I have to change my radio station to to make that work? So if you're moving toward the transmitter of the radio waves, Mm -hmm. then it's going to look to your radio receiver as if the frequency is higher than the frequency that they're broadcasting at. So that means that you're going to have to tune your radio tuner to a higher frequency in order to capture those waves and hear it on your radio receiver. This is how the cops know how fast your car is going. (laughs) Because they send out radar, which is just microwaves. Mm -hmm. It bounces off your car. So your car now becomes the transmitter. And if that car is moving toward the cop, then it, the frequency looks higher. And all the cop has to do is measure the frequency compared to the frequency sent out. And he knows how fast you're going. And so when we get back down to the atomic level, we have these atoms are bouncing around. And so if I'm shining a laser at my atoms here, most of them are, are not seeing the right color at all, right? Right, exactly. Well, it depends on how fast they're going. Let's imagine a gas of atoms that's already cold, but not cold enough. Okay. Now I shine the light light in and I tune the light so that it's below 
the resonant frequency if the atoms were at rest. So the atoms that are at rest are going to absorb a little bit of light. The atoms that are moving away from the laser are going to absorb even less. But you see, if they did absorb, they'd get speeded up. But they don't. They're moving away. That was going to be my question. And it's because they're not absorbing it. It's not so like any sort of like boost that they would have gotten doesn't happen because it's the wrong frequency. Right. I mean, it happens a little, but not much. Okay. Atoms that are moving toward the laser, they think that's the right frequency. They absorb and they slow down. Is that that actual physical moment of absorption that provides the decelerating force, I guess? Is that? Well, it depends on how we want to think about the light. So before the 20th century, people thought about light as being a continuous wave of electric and magnetic fields. And then those electric and magnetic fields would exert a force on whatever absorbed it. And that force would be in the direction of the of the light. Since near the beginning of the 20th century, we also think of light as being a stream of particles that we call photons. So if you just think of these as being, you know, little tiny marbles, I mean, they're not, but... <laughs> But they carry momentum. That's the key thing. They have zero mass, but they still carry momentum, which is a little bit weird. And every time they hit something, they transfer that momentum to the thing that they hit. So for the atoms that are at the wrong velocity, or if the laser beam is the wrong frequency, it's like the marbles go right on through and never transfer their momentum. But for the ones that have the right frequency, those marbles are absorbed, and that's going to change the velocity of whatever it hits. So if you imagine this stream of marbles shooting at a tar ball, you know, thinking about uh, Uncle Remus and uh, does anybody Bear know rabbit, that story yeah. more in Brer Rabbit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, then then if that tar ball is coming toward you and you're shooting stuff at it, it'll slow down. Right. And that's what we're doing, except it's photons and atoms. And the atoms are only going to absorb only be like tar when the frequency is just right. And that idea that the frequency has to be just right is very key because you got to make the Doppler shift, which is extremely small. You got to make that count. Mm -hmm. And it'll only count if the atom is exquisitely sensitive to the frequency because it's going to be a very tiny change in the frequency. But these atoms are exquisitely sensitive to the frequency. So this whole thing works. Now, I wish I'd thought of this idea. I'm not the originator of this idea. The people who thought about it, who came up with the idea in 1970, there were two pairs of people, one at University of Washington, Dave Weinland and Hans Daymelt, and at Stanford University was Ted Hench and Art Shallow. Four guys. Every one of those four guys got a Nobel Prize for something else. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to pause this right here because you mentioned Dave Weinland. Yeah. We're actually going to be talking to him in a couple of weeks, and he's actually coming to campus with you. And so, That's right. so he is one of the inventors of the idea of laser cooling and the first person to actually see it happen. Hmm. Wow. So you say, well, then why did I get a Nobel Prize? <laughs> yeah. What was different about the two? Yeah. Well, remember, he did get a Nobel Prize. But later, <laughs> right. he was working with charged atoms, what we call ions. Okay. I was working with neutral atoms. And there's different things you can do with neutral atoms compared to charged atoms. And you know, who gets a Nobel Prize has to do with a lot of things that we never know about because we don't know what, what they discuss. But I guess they thought it was kind of cool what the applications were that we were doing for neutral atoms. And a few years later, they thought it was pretty cool what the applications were that Dave was doing with ions. Hmm. So let's get back to, I feel like we've covered kind of the first half of what happens when the photons of the laser interact with the particle. Is that photon re-emitted? Ah, very good. Or, and how does that change what's happening? 
happening? Yeah, and the answer is yes. The okay. photon has to be re-emitted. So what happens is the atom absorbs the photon and goes into an excited state. That's how the absorption happens. That means that the electron that's going around the atom, so that valence electron absorbs the energy and it goes into an excited state. It's orbiting further away from the atom. It's got to get rid of that energy and it gets rid of that energy by emitting a photon. That photon gets emitted in a random direction. So when you average over all of the emitted photons, it doesn't add anything to the momentum or the velocity of the atom. Whereas all the incoming photons are all going in the same direction. So they're going to all push on the atom in the same way. And the emitted photons are just going to sort of randomly kick the atom but on average, do nothing. But that randomness is really important. Okay. And so what that means then is the re-emission, so it absorbs a photon, and then some short time later, it re-emits a photon. That itself has a little bit of a kick to it. Right. And But what you're saying is because the direction that that re-emitted one comes out is random, the net effect is null. Not quite. Okay. The average net effect is null. Oh, got it. But there's going to be fluctuations. Okay. That heats the atom. So we've got a competition between the cooling that comes because the atom preferentially absorbs the light that's moving up in the opposite direction and the heating because of these little random kicks that go in random directions. And the temperature you get to with laser cooling is a balance between the heating and the cooling. Hmm. Hmm. And it's really low. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that if I'm an atom and I'm heading straight towards you, you shine a, a photon at me. So that initial kick slows me down. Yeah. Now, if I remitted it straight back at you, then I'm going back at the same speed I was originally going. No, if you do it right back at me, that'll double. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry. You'd have to re-emit it in the same direction it was going. Then there would be no effect. And some of the time that happens. But most of the time, it's someplace else. So the net effect is always to slow down. Now, if you only did this once, there wouldn't be much of a deal. You'd slow down a little bit in that direction, and then you'd speed up in some other direction by the same amount. And it's it's tiny. We're talking about millimeters per second compared to atoms that start off at room temperature at hundreds of meters per second. So we got to do this a lot. We start off with the sodium atoms moving at almost a thousand meters per second. We need 30,000 photons to bring those atoms to rest. Now, I'm sort of mixing up ideas because we do start off with atoms at, you know, above room temperature, sodium atoms moving at about a thousand meters per second and pretty much all going in the same direction. We call that an atomic beam. And first, we get rid of almost all that energy by just shining a laser beam in the opposite direction. We don't have to worry about some of the atoms going the wrong way. They're all going in the same direction. Hmm. They're not all going with the same velocity. So we have to use some other tricks, but we can cool down the majority of the atoms to a really low temperature. And then we bring laser beams in from all different directions. And that way, no matter which way the atom goes, it'll see some laser beam that's Doppler shifted toward its resonant frequency, the frequency that it likes to absorb, and it'll slow down. So when the laser beams are coming from all directions, doesn't matter which way the atom is going, it'll slow down on average. But then again, it's heating up because of the fact that these random emissions, and here's where something really cool happened. So this picture that I'm giving you is called Doppler cooling for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. so it has to do with the Doppler effect. And you can calculate what the temperature is. And for sodium, that temperature, the lowest temperature you should get to is 240 microdegrees. Now that's a lot hotter than what I told you before, and I'll explain why that is, but it's still pretty cold, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when we started doing the experiments, we found out that the atoms were a lot colder. Now that never happens. <laughs> 
the whole idea of the experiment was we wanted to get as cold as we could. Mm-hmm. And apparently what had happened was we got a lot colder than we could because the theory was very clear about how cold we could get. We were a lot colder, not just like 10% colder. In the first experiments, we were a factor of six colder Wow. wow. Than the theory said was possible. Well, that's exciting. And in the end, we did a whole lot better than that. And the reason was that the theory was incomplete. Okay. The basic idea that I've described to you is true, but there's more. There's more complication. And usually complication works against you. But in this case, the complication worked in favor of us and allowed us to get much lower temperatures. And then other wonderful things happened. (laughs) That, That allowed us to get temperatures as low as about one microkelvin for a different atom. So we started off with sodium. We got as cold as maybe 25 microkelvins with sodium, but we switched to cesium. And the reason was that at first we didn't have the lasers to cool cesium, but we like cesium better because cesium is the atom that is used to define what we mean by a second. Mm. So a second of time is a certain number of oscillations of a cesium atom. You know, it used to be that a second was one over 24 times 60 times 60 of a day, but that's not what we mean by a second anymore. Now a second is based on the oscillations of atoms and cesium is the atom that we've all agreed is going to be our standard. So we started to cool cesium because we wanted to make better atomic clocks out of cesium. And we got cesium down to about a microkelvin. And today, all of the major industrialized countries of the world use atomic clocks with laser-cooled cesium using the techniques that we and other people developed over the years for getting cesium atoms down to one microkelvin. And the clocks wouldn't work nearly as well if we didn't have cold cesium. So we got down to temperatures of about one millionth of a degree using laser cooling. That's about as cold as we can do with laser cooling because we still have to beat this heating part. That heating that I described to you, it still happens. The cooling works better because of things that I haven't described at all. That just was you know, wonderful luck that the complication of these atoms produced even better cooling than we'd imagined. Hmm. But that's about it. We get down to about a microkelvin. Hmm. It's pretty cold, but yeah. you know, we're not satisfied. <laughs> so, so you you said at the top that you were getting down to like nano uh, and pico yeah, calvins and right. so what was the next okay the, so next the next step to get to there okay so let me back up a little bit and say that a lot of this was inspired by einstein einstein was the one who came up with the idea that that light was particles and he came up with a lot of ideas about the way light interacts with matter that we have used to do this well one of the ideas that he had was that if you got a gas of atoms of a certain kind of which sodium is in the class if you got that gas and cooled it down enough and got it dense enough, then something amazing would happen. A large fraction of the atoms in that gas would stop moving. So today we wouldn't say they stopped moving. We would just say they'd go into the lowest possible quantum state, but it amounts to the same thing. So if you could get a gas cold enough and dense enough, then this would happen. This idea of doing this to a gas, people really wanted to do it. And they thought laser cooling might be a good way to start, but it was clear it wasn't going to get you all the way. Couldn't get cold enough because the microkelvin wasn't going to be cold enough, especially not at the densities that we had. So there was another brilliant idea. And that is you got this gas. You don't keep this gas in a glass bottle because if the glass bottle were hot, it would heat up the gas. And if the gas bottle were cold, the gas would just condense and you wouldn't have a gas. We use right, a Because the bottle, the walls, every time an atom touched the wall, if the wall was hot, it would get some heat back and warm back up. And otherwise it would just stick to it. And Exactly. That's exactly okay. right. Yep. I'm with yep. you now. Okay. So we make a bottle out of magnetic fields. So it's a magnetic bottle. Our atoms 
the ones we were using are magnetic. And so we can use magnetic fields to hold them. So we, we made a, a magnetic trap and people start, okay, what if we do the following? What if we allow the most energetic atoms that are in this bottle escape? That means that what's left behind has a lower average energy. That means it's colder. Now let's okay. allow those atoms to hit each other and re-equilibrate. So you get a distribution of velocities. You know, some are faster, some are slower. That's the way it always works in a gas. There's a distribution, not all one energy or one velocity. And if they collide with each other, then they'll again form this distribution. Some of them are faster, some of them are slower. But the fastest ones escape. Mm. What's left behind, re-equilibrate again. Make a few more fast ones. Let them escape. Mm. Then the whole sample cools down. So like this cooling property, that makes me think of like water and why we sweat, for instance, right? Because by sweating, we're actually pulling the hot yeah. atoms off of our skin and that cools yeah. our body down. And that's what and, and that process is known as evaporation. Yeah. We call this evaporative cooling. It's exactly the oh. same or pretty much exactly the same thing. Same principle, huh? Yeah, same principle. The reason you get cold when you come out of a swimming pool into the windy day is because the most energetic of the water molecules are leaving your skin and what's left behind is colder. Hmm. Now, there's a couple of catches here. You got to have enough density that the atoms will collide with each other. So people had to work really, really hard to get a whole lot of atoms together in the same place at a high density. And then the atoms can collide with each other and, and re-equilibrate so that when you throw away the, the high energy ones, you'll get a few more high energy ones and you can throw those away. And in that way, you can cool the gas down a whole lot more. And that's how we get to nano kelvin temperatures i see that's wait so we're able to go so we were at 10 to the minus six yeah so by evaporative cooling we went down by another thousand you can get that cold but you don't even need to get even that cold to get bose einstein condensation and we don't usually start at a micro kelvin to do our evaporation because to get that cold usually we don't have a very good density so we make a and, compromise and, and so this prediction then that einstein had it's now called bose einstein condensation that's it and einstein himself thought it was crazy. And that opened up a whole new field of research. And starting with Bose-Einstein condensates, people got even colder. Because remember, the Bose-Einstein condensate has a large fraction of the atoms that are in the lowest quantum state. So you take mm. what's left, the stuff that's not in the Bose condensate, throw that away. Now you got something that's really cold. And that's how we get down into the nanokelvin range. And then in the pico-kelvin range, we use another trick. <laughs> mm. Wow. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. So it's not just pretty cool. It's <laughs> the coolest stuff there is. <laughs> I think that the, this is so interesting that it's kind of this mixture of most of a century worth of intellectual work, you know, starting with Einstein and all this super high tech stuff. Plus the sort of like last little bits and pieces are sort of like high school physics level concepts about evaporative cooling. Yeah. Like I remember learning about those in high school. <laughs> exactly. and, and that was 19th century physics. Here's something really cool. There's, I mean, this is amazing. Getting down that cold. Is this just for deeper insights into physics or are there some, well, could you take this to space or something? I don't know. Now, what do you, what do you do with it? I mean, we're already doing amazing stuff. As I said, the clocks of today, the primary time standards of the, the biggest industrialized countries are using these laser cooled atoms. But we never imagined some of the things that we'd be doing with these atoms. We want to have a new kind of a material, a material made with cold atoms, in which we have gotten rid of the noise, the randomness that comes from having a high temperature. Now, it turns out that these atoms can be nearly perfect in the way in which they behave theoretically. That is, in most solid state systems, you have to 
ignore all the bad stuff. The fact that the crystals aren't perfect, the fact that there's thermal energy, the fact that there's impurities in the sample. We can make samples of atoms that are perfectly pure, that don't have any imperfections in the lattice, and that are as cold as we want. And that allows us to test theories that describe these ideal systems in ways that are difficult to do with real solid state systems like, like people like you work with, mm -hmm. the things we actually care about, but to, to try to examine whether the theory describes what goes on in the really simple case before you graduate to the reality of real solids. So those kinds of things are happening with our cold atom systems. We create what we call optical lattices that are as kind of a, a faked crystal in which we have cold atoms instead of the kind of atoms that you have in a, a crystal solid. Well, that, so, that was great. Yeah. yeah. Just for a few final moments here, you were actually at this year's Nobel. Can you tell us anything that happened there? The thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about the Nobel experience is they're thinking, you know, this is very serious. Uh, the King of Sweden hands you the Nobel Medal and the, the Nobel Diploma, you know, the thing that's written in Swedish that says what you did. And there's these lectures, but it's also a great party for a week. It's just, <laughs> just, just great things are happening all the time, having a good time. <laughs> hmm. So some of the highlights of the week oh, so are the lectures. The, the lecture certainly was a lot of fun. The Nobel Banquet. This is an amazing thing. So there's something like 1,300 people in the city hall of Stockholm, and they have an army, a volunteer army of waiters. There must have been well over 100 waiters that were bringing in the food. Now, can you imagine preparing food for 1,300 people and then serving it simultaneously to everybody in the hall? I mean, it's, it's just an amazing thing to watch. The meal itself is an amazing creation. They have a competition to see who is going to get to prepare the Nobel menu for that time. So the, the greatest chefs compete for the thing. And then somebody has to have the horrendous task of eating all these amazing meals. <laughs> Is this celebration for all of the Nobel Prizes in the other fields as well? Yeah, so all the Nobel Prizes except for peace. Okay. And that's because peace is given in Norway. The way that Nobel's will worked out, the Nobel Prize for Peace is given by the Norwegian parliament, and they delegate the authority to a committee. The whole thing happens in Oslo instead of in Stockholm. Hmm. So we have physics, chemistry, medicine or physiology, literature, and you have to be really careful here. Economics is not a Nobel Prize. It's a prize given in honor and memory of Alfred Nobel, but it's not a Nobel Prize because it wasn't in his will. Mm. But they've added it on because the Bank of Sweden sort of bailed out the Nobel Foundation when they were running out of money. <laughs> Is that why that's called the dismal science? I think that has something to do with Malthus and, and <laughs> you know, whether it's the dismal science, I guess all depends on whether the stock market goes up or down. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks this has so been much a fun discussion. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode or questions that you would like us to address, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.
And right. call me Bill. I mean, you can introduce me as William Phillips, but between us, let's... Uh... I appreciate that, by the way. I've made it a point to say Bill when I'm talking to other people and they're like, what are you doing? You can't do that? I'm like, no, no. He, <laughs> he said it's okay. He's very relaxed about it. It's cool. 